Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 16, 13 to 20. I am probably one of the rare few who likes construction. Uh, We have had several projects here in town going on under construction that alter our routes and delay and create traffic and all those kinds of things and cause us to be really frustrated and late for work. And I realize that not everybody is quite as enjoying of construction as I am of of late. Uh, Interstate 2059 going into Birmingham has been almost completely shut down and has been just a pain in the neck to try to get to the airport or virtually anywhere past the airport. And so it can cause a lot of frustration. I'm one that quite enjoys it, and the reason is because as you drive by and you see uh, roads being built or you see buildings growing and and coming up over the time, you start to think, what's going in there? Uh, What is this going to be? How is this going to improve our lives in some way? And and there's a benefit that you gain on on the, the long end of it after it's all over, which I quite enjoy. Now, this morning in our text, in Matthew 16, 13 to 20, Jesus is going to unveil his plan of construction for the disciples. He's going to tell them very plainly what he has come to do and what his plan is. And so we're going to see that in our text this morning, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Read with me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said to him, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we recognize, as is evident even in this very text, that without you opening our eyes, we cannot see. And so we pray that you would give us insight into the meaning of this text and give us hearts that we may take this text and apply it to our lives. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this passage has caused tons of pastors and teachers of the Bible, a lot of grief over the years because of the various ways that it's interpreted in our culture and in our community and and various other places. There are definitely, I think, some more difficult concepts buried within this text. And so if you have come from a Roman Catholic background and you're coming here today, or perhaps that's, that's a part of your past, you have probably seen this passage used before by the Roman Catholic Church to justify the authority of the Pope, uh, uh, justify papal authority, as Peter in this passage seems to be singled out as the one receiving what Jesus is saying. He's singled out in this passage. And so Jesus says some things in this passage that I think they are going to be very important for us to understand both what he is saying and almost just as important what he's not saying because of the ways this has been abused over time. Keep in mind the context where we're at. Jesus has taken the disciples to, it says, Caesarea Philippi, the very beginning in verse 13, which is a town that's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And it's a town that's filled with Gentiles, and it's mostly known for its worship of the pagan god Pan. Now, this pagan god, the Greeks considered Pan, to be the god of spring and fertility. Springtime, the spring season, and fertility, like the fertility of the land and various other kinds of fertility. 
Uh, One of the reasons that Caesarea Philippi became the central place of worship for him is because this city, in this city, houses a cave underneath the base of Mount Hermon, which has the source of the Jordan River in it. And so it came to symbolize spring and fertility because from it came the, uh, the, Jordan, the source of the Jordan River, the life-giving source of water that comes in and flows through what we know as the promised land, uh, became known as the place where Pan was worshipped for that very reason. Now, this pagan city is filled with pagan worship of all kinds. It's worship of a pagan god who supposedly gives life, namely the river of life. And it's the setting of this pivotal confession of Peter to Jesus. This is the first time Jesus really begins to unveil his master plan of his building the church, which is what this passage is mainly about. And so I want to look at four certainties that are inside the text that we have in regards to how Jesus is going to build his church evident in the text. The first is that Jesus forms his church by supernatural revelation. Jesus forms his church by supernatural revelation. Jeremy did an excellent job last week communicating that Jesus has just warned his disciples in the previous passage as they've, uh, they, they've been journeying to this area that he's warned them about a, a, a prescribing to the leaven of the Pharisees, what he called the leaven of the Pharisees, which they eventually understood to mean the teaching of the Pharisees. And as Jeremy explained last week, there's a deep-seated unbelief in Jesus as the Christ, which the Pharisees are essentially teaching, and Jesus is warning the disciples about. Don't fall into the trap of unbelief, at which point the disciples begin to panic over the fact that they don't have any bread in spite of the fact that they have seen him in the recent passages multiply bread for them twice, they now begin to doubt that they have enough provision for the journey. At which point, Jesus, maybe lovingly, but also snidely, corrects them. They're in the boat. Are you serious? Have you not just seen what's happened? How could you possibly already begin to doubt? Which is evidence that the Pharisees' teaching has already found a way to root its way into the hearts of everyone. Or perhaps it's better to see this as the natural given position of the disciples is towards unbelief in Jesus. The natural gear of their heart, the natural position of their heart, is to find natural solutions to all of their problems rather than supernatural solutions. So what is produced by this lack of dependence on Christ is this anxious feeling that we see amongst the disciples right then and there, which Jeremy did an excellent job again of explaining last week. Now they've come to the city of Caesarea Philippi and Jesus is is asking them what the word on the street is about his own nature. What are people saying that I am? And the disciples having a, a better connection probably with the people most naturally hear the direct feedback from Jesus's ministry. And so he asks them, well, who do people say that I am? He's referring to himself in the third person. Who do people say the Son of Man is? He's referring to himself in the third person, probably coming from the title Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And there's a a really important passage later on in the book of Matthew we'll get to in chapter 26 where Caiaphas and Jesus have this exchange where the Son of Man becomes really important. And we'll hone in on that when we get to that passage. But suffice it to say now, he's referring to himself in the third person. Who do people say that I am? But some of the people, it turns out, think that he's John the Baptist. We've already seen that with Herod Antipas. That's his opinion of who Jesus is. He's John the Baptist, reincarnate, as it were. Some say Elijah. Some have included Jeremiah amongst that. Some just another one of the prophets. Now, these names that they mention about who Jesus is is actually really important to understand the public perception of Jesus at the time. 
The people that see him as Elijah are saying something really important about him. Namely, that he's not the Messiah, but that he's probably the forerunner to the Messiah. Now think about that for just a second. God says to, through the prophet Malachi in the book of Malachi that he's going to send the, uh, Elijah before the great day comes. And so there has been long legend that Elijah would show up, would appear on the scene before the Messiah would come. Now Jesus tells us that that was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the Elijah figure to come. But some of the crowd is seeing the work that Jesus is doing. They're hearing the preaching that he's doing. They're watching the miracles that he's doing. And what they're saying about him is that though that's undeniable, though it's very clear God is working through him, what it is is that he's a forerunner to the Messiah. He's pointing to someone else coming down the road. Perhaps someone whose biography they think might be more consistent with what their notions of the Messiah would be. Perhaps someone whose political desires would be more in line with what they think the Messiah might be. Now the people that see him as Jeremiah are probably reacting to some of his teaching since there's a lot of similarities between the kind of teaching Jesus does and the kind of teaching Jeremiah does or kind of prophecy Jeremiah does. Jeremiah faced a lot of hostility as he predicted the downfall of Judah and the destruction of the temple and he did this to the leadership of the Jews. Now you can imagine that's not the best way to win friends and influence people. Jesus' ministry and his prophecy is very similar to that of Jeremiah. In fact, in both cases, both the prophecy of Jeremiah and uh, the prophecy of Jesus, you will see both of them prophesy that the Jewish house will be left desolate. The house of the leadership of the Jews will be left desolate. Both of them say that. You can write this down. Jeremiah 22, 5. And Matthew 23, 38. Jeremiah 22, 5. And Matthew 23, 38. Is a, a coming together of both Jesus' preaching and Jeremiah's preaching. But on the point of Jesus being a, a, a prophet, just one of the prophets, well, this certainly isn't hard to imagine because many people in our very own day are going around saying the same thing about Jesus to this day. That he was special, a special kind of person. That he was certainly a prophet of some sort. That he was certainly a very good man. But they're unwilling to recognize him as anything more than that. Please don't miss this. The crowds are able to see the healings. The crowds are able to hear the teaching. The crowds have been a part of his ministry. And that's the reason they're saying he's a prophet. They still can't understand who he is. They've been there the whole time. They've watched the blind receive their sight. They've watched things that for most of us in this room, we would long to see. Who in here does not want to see Jesus come in and raise the dead? All of us. Who does not want to see Jesus come in and give sight to the blind? All of us do. They've seen it. And yet, they still aren't able to understand exactly who he is. Understand that all the physical data is there before them. They're seeing Jesus with their own two eyes. They're hearing him with their own two ears. And yet it doesn't equal an accurate assessment of his nature, much less a belief in his mission. So Jesus turns to the disciples to ask the question, what about y'all? Who do y'all say that I am? Remember the disciples have some moments of clarity about Jesus, but by and large, they've been more or less a little aloof about who Jesus is. They've had their moments, but then there's other times where they are completely oblivious, like when they're on the boat and he calms the storm 
or he comes walking to them on the sea, and they say to themselves, who is this? (laughs) Who is this guy? Remember, Jesus has multiplied bread for them twice, and they find themselves anxious over bread in the very next passage. Peter, who is more or less the spokesperson for the group, at least he speaks up first in most cases, answers Jesus on behalf of the group. In verse 16, he says, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. Peter and the disciples seem to have all the same relevant data that the crowds have. They've seen incredible miracles. They've seen uh, amazing uh, works that he's done in front of them, walking on the water and things like that. They've heard his teaching. And yet here the disciples, namely Peter first among them, without reservation, answers exactly as to who the person and work of Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He comes from heaven. He is God in the flesh. That's who we say he is. This is the very center of the Gospel of Matthew. Dead center in the Gospel of Matthew. Everything in the book hinges on this confession. In fact, from here on out, we will see Jesus speaking a lot more plainly and a lot more openly to the disciples as to what he's going to do and what his plans are for the future. Matthew is even going to tell us as much in verse 21, where he's going to say that from that moment on, he began to tell them openly as to what he's going to do. The disciples who have seen him calm the storm and walk on water, but then ask, who is this? Now have rightly concluded and they've confessed he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What's changed? What's the real difference between the disciples then and the disciples now? What's the difference between the disciples now and the crowds who still can't rightly discern who Jesus is? Was it one of the couple of miracles that they witnessed in this book that the crowds didn't see, like the walking on water? I don't think so, because they're still asking, who is this at the end of those miracles? Maybe was it the little bit of teaching that they were able to have, be privy to, where he brought them into the house and he began to teach them a little bit more? Is that why the disciples know exactly who he is and why the crowds are still missing it a little bit? No. In fact, Jesus refutes that idea in verse 17. He says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed it to you. He makes it clear that no amount of miracles, no amount of teaching, no amount of plain speaking would have made any difference in their belief. He could not have told them enough who he is. Peter couldn't have mustered up enough faith in his heart or listened hard enough to Jesus' sermons in order to believe who Jesus is. Flesh and blood are to no avail for him to believe who Jesus is, but only by the revelation of God from heaven. The only way Peter could see is that God opened his eyes. Jesus has said this before, actually. Just a few chapters earlier, in chapter 11, verse 25, he says this, Jesus is praying openly in front of everyone, and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, namely who he is, from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. It's not just Peter. It's the ones he calls little children. The ones later in the Gospel of Matthew, namely chapter 18, he'll call little ones. It's these same ones he refers to as poor in spirit that we've been talking to, talking about throughout the whole book. It's these that have had their eyes opened by the Spirit of God. These, by the Father, through His Spirit, that He's revealed who Jesus is. And without that revelation, the truth remains hidden. Jesus is very clear on that. 
And so it underscores the point that this church that he's about to unveil, that he's about to talk about, it's formed by supernatural revelation. The second thing I want you to see that Jesus builds his church on the apostolic foundation. Jesus builds his church on the apostolic foundation. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Well, let me tell you, this is, if you want commentary on this, you've got plenty of people willing to give a voice as to what this means and what Jesus is actually saying here in verse 18. Now, Peter has just had this astounding confession as to who Jesus is and what he says about, about Jesus. And Jesus says that, tur- turns to Peter and he says that he is Peter, which uh, the word Petros is the Greek word for rock or for stone. But remember, Jesus is speaking in probably in Aramaic. The word for rock in Aramaic is Kepha, where we get the name Cephas. So his name means rock, essentially. And Jesus says, your name is Kepha, Cephas, rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, the Roman Catholics err in interpreting this verse by giving Peter a ton of credit here. A lot of credit. Give him a lot, a lot of credit. More credit than you could imagine. And they essentially use this verse to justify the authority of the Pope, who they say is a descendant by faith from Peter and therefore has the same authority, they say, as Peter. Now, I'm going to explain more on that in just a minute, but there's the evangelical position as well, which I think errs on the other sides. Remember, we've talked about walking down a road and having a ditch on both sides. There's a ditch on both sides here. One is the Roman Catholic ditch, I think. But then evangelicals often err, I think, in the other side, giving Peter absolutely no credit whatsoever. This isn't about Peter at all. has nothing to do with him. Probably more like a reaction to Roman Catholicism, I think, that causes that. But I think both are a little bit in error, um, one more than the other. Many evangelicals interpret this verse to say that what Jesus is saying is that he will build his, his church on the rock of Peter's confession. But that doesn't really work for a couple of reasons. First, Jesus makes a wordplay on Peter's name, and he's drawing attention to Peter. Now, he doesn't have to do that to build his church on Peter's confession, or to make it clear that he's building his church on Peter's confession. Well, then there's the other part, which is the second reason. The next verse, he's going to say to Peter, you. He's going to single out Peter. You, in the singular. You, Peter. I'm going to give the keys to the kingdom. And then he says, what he binds, what you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will have been bound uh, on earth, or in heaven. So it's, it's obvious that Jesus is turning to Peter, and he's, he's singling him out in some way. And frankly, it would make no sense for us to then interpret that, no, Peter has absolutely no bearing on this text whatsoever. He has, he has no part to play in this, in this text whatsoever. To be clear, the confession is a really important part of this, but it's not the only thing that's important. It makes more sense to see the parallel between the two things happening. Peter has just called out Jesus by his identity and his role. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ, your title, your identity. The Son of the living God, your role in the whole salvation process. You are coming on behalf of the Father, come from heaven. What you say is what he says. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus now has just called out Peter by his identity. You are Peter. And then by his role in redemptive history. You are a foundational piece on which this church will be built. Paul tells us as much in Ephesians 2, 20, uh, 2, 19 and 20. So then, you are, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
So it's not merely the confession of Peter, but it's also Peter. It's also not only Peter. Jesus builds his church on Peter and the confession. So you might think about it like this. Peter is the first ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. He's the first among many, but he's the first ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. He is the ambassador carrying the king's edict. Peter, you have said rightly that I am the son of the living God, that I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. Now you, as the first ambassador, are going to take that message out from here and you're going to give it to everyone else. Because he's been the first one to confess, he's the first ambassador. The ambassador and the edict of the king can't be separated from one another. And Peter has this unique position because he's the first one to voice this confession rightly to go out and actually proclaim this to the rest of the world. So Peter has a unique position in the church for just this reason, which we also see in the book of Acts. He takes this sort of leadership role of preaching and teaching. However, the Roman Catholic explanation of this verse will also not do justice to the text, to what's in front of us. They believe in the primacy of Peter, that because he has confessed this, um, they say that he later becomes the bishop of Rome, and then by virtue of what Christ has given to him here as the bishop of Rome, he has that, that rule across all of Christianity. And then he hands this on to the next bishop of Rome, to the next bishop of Rome, to the next bishop of Rome, which we all call the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, that he is representative of this rule over the entire church. And there are tons of other uh, things that they argue like this, like papal infallibility, like the Pope is infallible in his office. And this idea says that the Pope is preserved from the possibility of error. Just think about that for just a second. He's preserved from the possibility of error when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church. That's some authority that they're claiming he has. Now, there's several reasons why this is absolutely not what Jesus means here. First and foremost, we know Peter isn't infallible because in the next paragraph, Jesus calls him Satan. I mean, do you need any more evidence than that? Further, as we get closer to the resurrection, Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. That's not a good start to your infallibility. Now, if you say, well, well none of that whole infallible stuff started until after the church really got started and after Christ ascends. Well, then what are we to make of Paul coming to Peter and actually confronting him about his treatment of the Gentiles in front of the Jews? How's that infallible? He reprimands him. You can see that in Galatians 2, 11 to 14. Write that down. Read it later. Now, the second reason that the Roman Catholic interpretation of this passage is wrong is because Jesus is going to repeat what he says to Peter in chapter 18 about giving the keys of the kingdom. But except when he does that, the you, instead of being singular, becomes plural. So the you there gets pluralized across all of the apostles as they begin the church in Jerusalem. So Peter might be the first one out of the group to confess who Jesus is, but he's not really given any heavier a responsibility than the rest of the apostles are given in chapter 18, which is why Paul says that in Ephesians 2, 20, about the apostles and prophets being the foundation of Christ's church that he is build, uh, building. So they're forming the foundation for the church where they confess rightly who Jesus is and then they're turning to others and teaching others likewise, proclaiming this same gospel. So while the apostles may form the foundation of the church, you and I would then amount to the sheetrock, the studs, the brick, the insulation, the windows, the shingles, and various other pieces of the house. All of us are part of the house, and we all have similar responsibilities 
as the apostles. It's just that they were first. And we're continuing now to invest in the security of other people, of the materials that are added to the house around us. So there's a balance here that we need to strike. Where the apostles are important as a foundational piece of the church, yet their importance isn't translated into sinlessness, infallibility, and it's certainly not something that's like handed down from generation to generation. That's nowhere in this text. So in this metaphor, Jesus uses Peter and the apostles play the role of foundation as Jesus plays the role of builder. And we saw in Paul's metaphor, Jesus is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the foundation. But there are two kind of different metaphors. In this metaphor here, Jesus is the builder of the church. And he's laying down the apostles and prophets as the foundation. Now, what we don't want to get backwards is what Jesus says here abundantly clear. I will build my church. Period. Now, many local congregations twist this a little bit. Get it backwards. All of us in this room, I'm assuming, would affirm what Jesus says here. Yes, Jesus is building his church. But sometimes in our actions, we twist it. First, when we try to build bigger buildings or get fancier things, hoping that more people will come in because of what we've done. The attraction model. If we just build it, they will come. Field of dreams mentality. That's when we've, when we've got it backwards because what we've said is Jesus builds his church, but what we've put hope and stock in is that brick and mortar builds his church. Second, we get it backwards when we put all, all of this on pastor and staff. Well, what we really need is someone to come and Preach hellfire and brimstone. And what we need is somebody that comes and appeals to the masses. What we need is this kind of thing. Or what we need is that kind of thing. And, and that'll bring them in. And that'll build it. Jesus is defiant about that. It is not flesh and blood that builds the church. I build the church. And what does he build it on? People rightly confessing the gospel. People rightly proclaiming the gospel. That is what is required of a church. When the church forsakes that, the preaching and teaching of the Bible, when the church forsakes that, that is when it's no longer a church. That is when it's given up altogether. When a church forsakes building one another up. When a church forsakes calling one another out on sin, when a church forsakes encouraging and building one another up, when a church forsakes putting to death the sin in their own body, that's when it ceases to become a church. And rightfully so, the doors should be closed. Third thing I want you to see is that Jesus expands his church by proclamation of the gospel. Jesus expands his church by proclamation of the gospel. Look at the end of verse 18. He promises to build his church, but then he gives this assurance. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this is translated hell here, but it's actually Hades. It, what he's saying is the, the, the realm of the dead, the grave, if you will, shall not prevail against it. Now, if you'll indulge me for just one moment, I want you to put an image in your mind. I want you to think about this for just a second. I want you to picture massive gates of iron you can't see through. Solid iron, top to bottom. Huge, tall, 20, 25 feet tall from top to bottom. I want you to picture a, a messenger coming up to these big, heavy iron doors and around the handles of these iron doors, these iron gates is a really thick chain locking the two handles together so that the gate cannot open. Above the door is this, these massive iron letters that say the grave. 
And then underneath it, it says, all enter, none leave. And as the messenger gets close to the door, he can hear sounds of screaming on the inside. Sounds of weeping and crying at people whose destination is the grave and they have no choice, forever separated from their loved ones, never to see their kids again. As the messenger gets closer every so often, you can see these iron doors flex a little bit, bulge, and the chain gets tight around the handles. As people on the inside are doing everything they can to get out, to escape their certain fate of being locked in the grave forever. The messenger comes up to the gate and a shadow passes underneath the door. And the people on the other side of the gate all grow silent. It's the first visitor that they've seen in for who knows how long. They all grow silent as they wait for what this person is going to do or say. This person clears his throat. And he he yells over over the gates, over the iron bars, the iron gate. Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, has come from heaven. He's died on the cross. He has suffered the wrath of God for you. That for all who believe, He has purchased your freedom from this prison. Repent of your sins and believe. Trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And on the other side, is dead silence for what seems like forever. And all of a sudden, the gates are hit one last time and the chain shatters to a thousand pieces and people who are condemned to the grave are now running free. Jesus is telling his disciples, what you have just confessed what you have believed in your heart to be true about me is what gives you life and freedom from this prison. And now you're responsible to tell everyone else who is condemned to die, which is everyone. You're responsible to tell everyone else and through revelation of the Spirit, many will come to believe in this good news. And by believing the gates of the grave will never be able to hold them. Why? Because he's going to descend from heaven with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of a trumpet, and he's going to call everyone up from the grave. And for those that believe in him will have eternal life. That's why the grave cannot hold them any longer. We believe in a Christ who has defeated death once and for all. So death, for those who believe, is not the end of the story anymore. It's a comma. A footnote. It's a falling asleep. Now the challenge is to us. Many of us have sat in churches our whole life We have heard people preach time and time again. We have fallen asleep in a thousand sermons. We have walked outdoors like that message doesn't matter at all. And it calls into question, does it not? If we actually believe this. If that's you, you've sat in here a thousand times and there's just nothing about the word that actually intrigues you, that you sit here in boredom every week 
You should be worried. Because if that's true of you, if you have been previously held under the grave spell, held captive by the grave, there's nothing worse than that, by the way. Is there? Is there anything worse than that? Than the idea that when you die, that's it, you're worm food? Is there anything worse than that? Why would you do anything else? Who cares about any of this if that's the result in the end? If that's the worst news that you could possibly ever be given, is that when you die, that's it. And someone has really given to you the message of hope and has come to you and said, I know the way out. It doesn't have to be that way. And you have really believed and the gates of the grave have burst wide open. How is it that you can sit in apathy over the scriptures? How? How is it that you can sing a mighty fortress is our God? No matter the speed, no matter the tune, no matter the key, no matter who's singing it. How is it that you can sit there and sing that song? not be moved to repentance and adoration over what God has done for you and bursting the gates of Hades wide open. You should be worried. That should cause you to tremble in fear over what happens when you die. Fourth thing I want you to see. Jesus protects his church by purification. Jesus protects his church by purification. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now I realize there's some pretty complicated ideas in here going on in verse 19 and many of us uh, have probably a lot of questions as to what this means. But here's my plan as far as this goes is to go into much greater detail, Lord willing, as we get into chapter 18, where Jesus is going to reiterate some of this, most of this, again, my plan as we get there is to break away from the book of Matthew and to talk, do a short series basically on the church. What is the church? Why do we exist? Why are we here? We will go into much greater detail on many of these things. Suffice it to say uh, for now that... um, Instead of this, in in 18, it it won't just be directed at Peter. It'll be directed at all the disciples and then eventually us. But suffice it to say for now that as the disciples preach the gospel message to those who will profess faith in the gospel, some will believe. Many will come to faith. And then eventually, as we all continue to preach the gospel, many will come into the house of God and be part of his kingdom. Now, the apostles, what they're given right here, and what Peter first is given, is essentially stewardship over this kingdom that Jesus is establishing, that he's building. And he's pointing out to Peter in chapter 18 uh, and the rest of the apostles there that they're stewards of the kingdom. And what they're to do is to ensure that the house of God is striving towards purity. You may remember the messages given to Moses in the Old Testament. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul repeats that about the church in 1 Corinthians. And so their job, our job, is to ensure that no one is on the outside that belongs on the inside as well as no one's on the inside that belongs on the outside. This is essentially telling to Peter and to the rest of the apostles and eventually to you and me that they're responsible for watching over the membership of the church, who belongs and who doesn't. So Jesus is in chapter 18 going to give them this process and going to lay out the process of membership and church discipline much more clearly then, which essentially for them are effective tools for appropriate care of the Lord's sheep. There are processes of church discipline whereby one proves that they have, though they have confessed Christ, though they seemed like they belonged to the body of Christ and in the kingdom, they prove themselves by their action and by their unrepentant heart to actually be belonging outside 
the kingdom. And so membership then, so that's church discipline. Membership, on the other hand, is when someone comes forward claiming that their rightful place is on the inside. So interestingly enough, both Jesus in chapter 18 of Matthew and Paul in 1 Corinthians and several other places is going to convey that it's not just Peter. It's the apostles, but also the church. Each has the responsibility for the care of members, of the people sitting next to you. Every one of us has the the responsibility of caring for the people next to us through membership and church discipline. This is what Baptists have meant historically by congregational rule, or perhaps you hear congregational authority. The reason we believe in that, it's come to mean over the last probably couple decades, uh, pens and paper clips and budgets. And that's not historically what it's really pointing to. It's not about paper clips and pencils. It's about souls. Each one of you in this room, if you are a member of this church, are responsible for the souls of the people sitting next to you and across the room. Every single one of us are responsible for warning each other that you're in the midst of sin, telling them to turn from their error. It's about correcting them in their error. It's about uh, membership and taking responsibility for the encouragement and the upbuilding of the person sitting next to you. And you're taking this on because Jesus forms his church by supernatural revelation. Jesus builds his church on the apostolic foundation. Jesus expands his church by proclamation of the gospel. Jesus protects his church by purification. Now, what does all that mean then for us, for you and me? Well, Jesus is the only builder that this is true of. What he's building while it's under construction, it's still open for business. That doesn't happen anywhere else. We can't even drive on 2059 until now. What Jesus builds is open for business. And what that means is that you and I are still under construction. Every single one of us is a work in progress. Every last one of us. That's why repentance is a daily thing. That's why seeking out his word is a daily thing. That's why calling each other out on sins that we may not even be aware of. You know how often gossip happens and we don't even call it out? Just partake in it? You know how often people gossip and they don't even realize they're gossiping? And how much they need you as their brother or sister to say, you know, it's gossip. Let's, Let's just steer clear of it. Do you know how much we need each other to invest in our upbuilding and our encouragement? Nobody needs an accuser. Nobody needs someone to come in and say, I know that's not sin, but you're doing it wrong. Nobody needs that guy. We've already got one. His name's Satan. That's all he does. Nobody needs that guy. We need people addressing sin. And the rest of it is encouragement and upbuilding for our growth. It means that more bricks and mortar and studs and windows are being added every day. That's also what it means. Just as you and I are a work in progress, there are other people out there who have not heard the gospel, and it's on us as the people that are already part of the house, to shout it from the rooftop. You should really come into this house. It's so much better. This is the life that you, you want, that culture is promising you, but cannot live up to. This is the good life that everybody's saying will happen after the construction is finished. I'm here to tell you that the good life is to be had now. You can have it. You can have freedom from the grave. We have to tell it, and we also have to live it. It does no good to preach it to your children if you're not going to tell them at the same time, I'm sorry I did that thing. If you're not going to be the one to apologize for them, to, to them for the sins that you commit, how are they going to know how to repent of sin to God? You can teach them all you want to, but you also have to show them. That goes for our neighbors and our coworkers as well. It also means that Jesus builds his church. Jesus is building his church. And not to burst anyone's bubble, but he does it with or without Emmanuel Baptist Church. 
The building of his church is not contingent upon this place. It will continue to succeed long after all of us are gone, so long as he tarries. He doesn't need Emmanuel Baptist Church to do any of this. In reality, what we are doing is picking up a shovel and joining in the work. Preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And what are we doing in the meantime? Trusting that through our proclamation of the gospel, Christ is going to build his church. And being okay with the results. But it does mean for us that we actually do need to pick up a shovel. That's how he does it is that we pick up the shovel of proclamation of the gospel and we tell our friends and family members. That will include even inviting them to church. There are not many people that are just going to walk in off the street into this church. It's going to require you to tell them. But if the idea is to just sit there and watch attendance numbers go up or go down, say, ah, we're doing something wrong or we're doing something right, but you're unwilling to pick up a shovel and actually go do something about it. We don't need that. That's not what Christ is doing. He's on the move building his church and your proclamation of the gospel, you never know who that person is, your kids, your family members, your neighbors, your coworkers, whoever it is, that when you tell them the gospel, God might flip on the light switch, connect the electricity, that they may see and believe and come to faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray for us as a church. We know you don't need us to accomplish your purposes. But we want to join you in what you're doing. So we pray for fruit. whether it's the work we'd soon to begin at Wood Village or work that other members of our congregation are doing in their private time with their neighbors or friends or family members. or Maybe it's through ministry in Tuscaloosa International Friends or, or various other places where our church does ministry regularly. Maybe it's just through the preaching of the gospel here. We pray for fruit. For people to see and believe. We pray for our idle hearts. That you would spur them to action. Lord, allow us not to hear your word and let it fall on deaf ears. We pray that you would give us such a sense of joy that through Christ, the gates of Hades have broken wide open. The grave cannot hold us. That we would have such a sense of joy over that that we would long to tell anyone and everyone that would listen that they too may run free. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen.